0: Professor, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. morning. Now, you've devoted so much of your work, your research, uh, in the areas of public safety, foreign relations. It seems like in the last several years, uh, you focused a lot of that on digital media and social media and the impact of those things on public safety. Why is that? Is that simply a reflection of the time?
1: To some degree, yeah. Uh, When I first started looking at um, terrorism about uh, say 20-25 years ago, um, one of the things that struck me was the communicative aspect that's necessary for terrorists to achieve their objectives, their political objectives. Um, The violence is meant to communicate certain messages to their target audiences. Um, So I've always been kind of uh, focused uh, to some degree or another on how violent non-state actors and bad actors in general Um, try and use various um, mechanisms to communicate their objectives and, you know, achieve their objectives through that means. And along came social media and the internet and those things. I started looking at uh, what I called influence warfare at the time, back in 2009. Um, My thinking about those uh, topics has evolved to include uh, digital influence warfare, social media, deep fakes, videos, all those kinds of things since then. Um, And it's also expanded beyond the realms of terrorists and even criminal organizations and now looking at the that um, uh, rogue states are using social media uh, for this digital influence warfare purposes I talked about.
0: You've coined, it seems, this term digital mercenaries. Can you break that down?
1: Yeah, so uh, mercenaries have been around, uh, you know, time immortal. Uh, There's been all kinds of mercenaries who've uh, been hired by kings and uh, you know popes and all kinds of different uh, leaders in years you know ancient years ago uh, to conduct warfare on their behalf for money. You know they're they're not motivated by patriotism or loyalty to uh, any particular country or leader. Um, they're doing it for money. Uh, so mercenaries have been around for forever. Um, And what I've noticed over the last 15, 20 years is that now we're seeing the evolution of mercenaries engaged in warfare-like activities, not just in the physical realm like the Wagner Group does in uh, Syria or in Ukraine or in uh, Africa now, Um, but also they're doing a lot of this same kind of um, actions uh, against uh, targets uh, in the digital space. So they're targeting um, different audiences, Uh, using social media, using the internet to try and influence uh, perceptions, behaviors of the targets on behalf of a paying customer. Um, They can do this on behalf of states, corporations, um, uh, criminal organizations, you name it, political organizations. Well, um, and they're getting paid fairly well by doing that. And one of the things that I uncovered in terms of um, looking at this digital influence mercenary activity is there's also a secondary way that they're also making money. And that's by manipulating the algorithms um, and uh, getting paid to influence the behaviors, the perceptions, beliefs um, of those targets. Uh, and they're getting paid pretty well for that. Uh, but then they're also making money off the ways in which algorithms um uh, feed us information on social media, and they're pushing people towards ad-heavy websites uh, that try and give them some justification for believing in conspiracy theories like QAnon or whatnot. Um, so there's a expanding realm of uh, profit making in what I'm seeing now in terms of the digital influence mercenaries.
0: Now, how sophisticated are these operations? Right, social media in general, right, is designed or it's Effectively, a machine, right, that's designed to kind of target people based on certain behavioral uh, mechanisms that it comes up with. How is that applied? How dangerous is that when you're talking about warfare and global public safety?
1: No, uh, so there's a lot of things you can unpack from that, uh, just from that particular um, uh, lens. Um, if the goal is to uh, exacerbate political polarization in a democracy. Um, social media provides all kinds of opportunities to do that. One of the things we saw here in the U.S. uh, during the 2016 uh, presidential election, for example, is that certain um, uh, actors online were uh, encouraging protests and conspiracy theories and all kinds of things uh, for both pro-Trump and pro-Clinton political activists and voters and so forth. Uh, So they're basically trying to increase the amount of uh, anger and uh, disinformation that provokes that kind of anger uh, in terms of both sides of that uh, political debate. Um, That, that, of course, uh, when they increase the amount of political polarization within a democracy, it makes those uh, individuals in democracy less likely to have much concern or to do anything about what the originators of that strategy are trying to achieve in the foreign policy realm. So for example, hypothetically, let's say that Russia was uh, uh, paying certain digital influence mercenaries uh, to engage in this behavior in order to exacerbate the political polarization in the United States. Um, Their goal would be to divert and distract the US population from paying attention to the, uh, the annexation of the Crimea, for example, or for some of the other things that Russia has done in the foreign policy realm, Uh, And to some degree, it's worked for them. They've been able to, um, you know, deflect and distract uh, a lot of attention away from uh, what they're trying to achieve uh, in other realms uh, by making us more angry at each other, make us much more more focused on, um, you know, trying to win certain zero-sum games in the U.S. and so forth.
0: You've described in your book, your 2021 book, Digital Influence Warfare in the Age of Social Media, a variety of these tools. That are used right fake bots and accounts and and fake news articles which of these if you can pinpoint one i'm sure you can um would you deem most pervasive that you see often that the public generally should watch out for
1: emotional provocation that seems to be the most effective way uh to get uh the behavior that the digital influence mercenaries or attackers or whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, in terms of their objectives, um, pro- the emotional provocation could be um, getting you to defend what you believe, or it could be um, getting you to attack others uh, based on some disinformation about how evil they or their policies or positions may be. Um, I think one of the things that uh, we've lost sight of, uh, a lot of us here in uh, different countries even, uh, when we're interacting with social media is that um, because of the safety or perceived safety of sitting in front of our computer or a smartphone or whatever, uh, we approach social media rather individualistic kind of um, false sense of security. Um, And we may not be uh, necessarily um, recognizing the fact that we're being manipulated. Uh, for a certain objective that we may not even understand. Um, and the the ability for them to manipulate us in this emotional provocation way um, is something that uh, we've, we've not really done much in terms of media literacy uh, education here in the U.S. to prevent.
0: Is there a remedy to this that is legislative, or is it within the purview of the executive branch, or is it a combination of both, right? Because it's a weird area in which Congress can legislate, obviously, and you have the executive branch headed by the commander in chief. And you seem to have a blend of these issues colliding um, in those two branches of government.
1: Yeah, that's very insightful uh, question. The the, the problem we have uh, with government uh, intervention in these kinds of things is that majority of what we're talking about is owned and operated by the private sector. And so there's all kinds of things that the government may want to see or may want to have happen. Um, but there's only so much you can get the private sector to do. You can incentivize them to do certain things. You can punish them if they uh, cross certain boundaries or certain laws that you've uh, put in place. Um, but the Supreme Court has struck down a lot of those attempts to impose uh, governmental intervention in the private sector. Uh, and so a lot of the success we've seen so far, especially in the counterterrorism realm, encountering uh, online disinformation or provocation or whatever, have been really uh, private sector originated. Um, Google, uh, Facebook, a bunch of the big um, private sector players uh, have funded a number of initiatives, uh, including the Global Internet um, Forum for Countering Terrorism. Uh, there's Tech Against Terrorism. There's other kinds of different uh, things which are non-governmental efforts. And they've been pretty successful at uh, identifying these kinds of threats and then responding to them uh, appropriately. Uh, and then, of course, there's also the in-house um divisions and departments within Google, Facebook, Twitter, that does a lot of harm uh, identification and mitigation efforts um, within their own social media platforms. Um, And this is not imposed by the government. It's not legislated. It is basically um, something that's good for the company and their shareholders. And that's why they're doing it.
0: Right. So what you're talking about is the First Amendment issues, right? Whenever here in the U.S. you have these Uh, Regulations of speech and social media is an extension of that you have the constitutional red flags go up and and the case law in this country has been pretty clear for decades and decades right Uh, incitement of violence clear and present danger, there are exceptions right there are ways in which speech can be regulated. Um, Do you view this as falling within any of those categories, at least arguably uh, that um, argument can be made.
1: It's a it's a slippery slope. Um, unfortunately, because uh, there's a lot of, um, things that we would want individual citizens of the country to take responsibility for themselves. Um, their failure to do so then suggests, well, we're going to have to do something else at the government level, including regulation, um, to try and mitigate the harm that's being caused by these types of, uh, activities online, um. You know, the Supreme Court is very, especially these days, in, in terms of the Supreme Court makeup right now. Um, they, they're very hesitant, I think, to um, impose certain kinds of uh, parameters on what can and cannot be said, what cannot cannot be done online. Um, the harm, I think, is recognized by most people uh, who look at this uh, from an objective point of view. Um, the problem we run into is there's a political um, dimension to this uh, very uh, heavy politicized dimension to this now, um, both in terms of what should or shouldn't be called certain kinds of harms. Um, who is responsible for certain kinds of harms. Uh, there's still disagreement in Congress about whether or not Russia had anything to do with the spread of disinformation in the last several uh, political elections, for example. Um, the data and the evidence are all there to support um, you know these kinds of um, allegations, uh, but the, there are certain members of Congress, elected members of Congress, who refuse you know, to accept that data and evidence. Uh, and so uh, you know, agreeing on a regulation or a series of regulations that would um, be beneficial across the board, regardless of a political stance, that's been proven rather elusive right now for this political environment.
0: You were quoted, I think, uh, several weeks ago in Newsweek about what you're referring to exactly now, uh, the politicization of some of these terms, right, and the conflation of the domestic terrorist groups or the alleged domestic terrorist groups with the terrorist groups that are abroad, um what distinctions do you see in terms of social media's effect uh when it comes to foreign uh, terrorism as opposed to domestic terrorism and obviously those words are broad and mean a lot um generally speaking
1: um yeah that's uh, another great question um the act of, of uh terrorism uh in what i've studied over the last 25 years or so is kind of viewed as a criminal deviant behavior Um, It's human behavior because humans do this, you know, dolphins don't terrorize other dolphins, koala bears don't terrorize other dolphins, or, you know, koala bears, the idea being that um, human beings figure their way around obstacles. So we can put up all kinds of regulations and obstacles, either the private sector, social media platform level or the governmental level or whatnot. Um, And human beings who want to achieve certain goals and objectives will find a way around those obstacles. That's just kind of human nature. We've seen this uh, time immortal. Um, So uh, when it comes to um, whether or not the uh, source of the disinformation or in terms of terrorism, the source of the communication is foreign origin or domestic origin. Uh, I tend not to really care much about that because the, the overall goal of terrorism is to coerce a population, a target and its government to try and achieve certain objectives. You're using violence and the threat, the credible threat of violence to try and achieve those objectives. Um, and if a society allows uh, itself to be coerced, uh, the terrorists win, or in this case, the digital influence mercenaries or the digital influence, um, you know, state actors even win, um, and that's something that really can't be regulated. It's something that I think that needs to be taught and nurtured in a society uh, to be more resilient, to be um, a bit more vigilant about uh, the fact that there there are attempts to try and manipulate their perceptions and beliefs, whether it's terrorists or whether it's you know uh, state actors using social media. Um, The the same uh, end goal is in mind and that is they're they're trying to achieve objective by manipulating us uh, and we need to stand up to it and we need to sort of learn how to recognize what's going on uh, and say we're not going to take any more of this we're going to uh, refute your efforts to try and coerce me through fear or, uh, you know, convince me of something that's not true, through disinformation provocation and whatnot. Um, and that's something that isn't really regulation. It's more um, public education. And I think we've kind of lost the script when it comes to that particular need.
0: So you hit on my exact question. Social media seems to be a new idea relatively, right? And it targets primarily kids and, and younger folks. How much of this falls on parents? How much of this falls on schools at every level?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's another great question. Uh, we uh-huh. Parents of... Unfortunately, uh, in many corners of of U.S. society, anyway, parents have kind of abdicated their responsibility when it comes to educating uh, their children. They've handed it over to the, the teachers and the schools and said, "Here, you deal with uh, getting my kid into a position to be a productive member of society, to go to a good college, to you know have a wealthy and happy uh, life going forward." Um, yeah, there's there's been um, an unfortunate abdication of those responsibilities at parental level and includes um, just basically talking to their children about what is and isn't valid uh, uses of social media and online uh, activities and all that. Um, Some of that I think has changed uh, in the last say 10, 15 years with a younger generation of parents that understand social media, the internet, but the previous generation, I mean, you know, that debt generation still thinks in terms of blackberries and flip phones. Um, so, you know, it's, I think it's a generational thing to some degree, um, the more uh, the parents become much more familiar with what's going on, what TikTok is, what Facebook is, you know, what these different social media platforms are, are doing you know, to children um, and uh, and recognizing their responsibility to you know, not regulate necessarily what their child does, uh, but educate their child to have an informed and responsible approach to their uses of social media in, their, in, in the internet. Um, that's a parental responsibility that uh, many parents have just said, oh, that's, you know, the schools need to teach that, or, you know, they'll learn that on their own, you know, kind of thing. And I think that's that's a mistake.
0: You did mention schools. What can schools do, particularly at the middle school and high school levels when kids are particularly impressionable uh, and now kids are so sophisticated in using these devices, uh, and these are global devices where information is is obtained from all the corners of the world. Is there anything schools can do? And when I say that, I mean specific blockers that they can use, and perhaps educational programs, things of that nature?
1: Yeah, there are certainly things that schools can do um, uh, you know, some schools have imposed, uh, you know, technical uh, signal blockers, you know, they don't allow uh, any kind of social media uh, activity while the students are on campus of the school. Uh, many schools have embraced media literacy, um, you know, basic media literacy programs, um, usually they're extracurricular or there's something that's not really built into the curriculum but some schools have actually um, uh, included those uh, media literacy uh, programs and objectives in their curriculum wholesale. Um, the, the tricky part is when you have a, um, a public school, for example, that has you know, usually a school board and they have differences sort of opinions about what is or isn't appropriate uses of social media, what, what websites are appropriate or not appropriate to go to for research papers or for news sources or whatnot. There have been ample uh, examples of certain school boards that have um, rejected a request to um, for a school to have a, a subscription to the New York Times or Washington Post uh, because the school board claims that it's a politicized um, uh, anti-republican kind of uh, newspaper. We don't allow our students to. I mean, th- they basically they're taking that particular uh, source of information and politicizing it and rejecting or, or banning that access for those schools. Um, so when you when you have uh, an effort trying to increase students' literacy uh, and responsibility and and willingness to validate the sources of information that they're going to either for daily news or for research papers or whatnot, and the school board is um, rejecting many of those sources, not on the grounds of evidence or data or valid uh, information, but a political orientation, uh, that gets very problematic. And I think that's where um, some of these programs just kind of get lost in the weeds and and, and shut down um, for the wrong reasons.
0: You you mentioned a minute ago how this all came to light in the 2016 election. And I agree with you. A lot of this um, stuff, particularly with the disinformation campaigns, came to light at that time, right? And the country kind of uh, went crazy over it. What has the government done to see that this doesn't happen again? I know folks have been prosecuted, um, but... Is there anything en masse that has been done to ensure that future elections, there already has been one since then obviously, future elections aren't impacted by this kind of stuff?
1: Um, Yeah, Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security uh, launched the CISA. uh, It's a department within the DHS that looks at um, election interference online um trying to monitor it uh uh, encourages different social media platforms um when identified uh to shut down those sources block those sources of information um there's a lot of efforts um that the government would like to impose but can't of course because like the regulation uh, prohibition we talked about earlier um but uh there's, there's, they're convening different conferences to bring together experts and uh, technological leaders to look at things like um, what they call uh, in, um, what's the term they use? Um, not inappropriate, but unauthorized coordinated activity uh, and unauthentic, inauthentic coordinated activities, um, where it's it's clearly uh, efforts by some have entity online to use uh, a whole massive team of bots of, of fake accounts to try and coerce uh, the uh, a population to a target, uh, convince them that there's a massive uh, upswelling of support or uh, anger against or support for a certain political position. Um, it's all being automated by these fake accounts. And, and so you can now identify those things and try and block those things uh, to a large degree now. And so sharing of uh, best practices, lessons learned, uh, government's trying to encourage those kinds of activities as well across the private sector. Um, And of course, like you referenced, there have been prosecutions, there have been efforts to sanction Um, Whether it's the Internet Research Agency in Russia, or they don't call themselves that anymore, um, in St. Petersburg, or other uh, online entities that have been known to do this en masse, you know, to the tune of hundreds of thousands of these fake accounts, all coordinated to try and, uh, you know, shape a certain perception about an event or about a policy. Um, You know, there's there's efforts now to try and... uh, Uh, educate the public to some degree about these things by publishing all these reports, whether it's the congressional report, the Mueller report, whatever, uh, you know, government reports have have been put together from several years of research. Um, They're trying to do some uh, education to the public about who's doing what and why uh, and what we should uh, be aware of and hopefully try and prevent in the future. Um, But, you know, hope is not a strategy. Uh, You know, you still have to have some sort of uh, overarching strategy to prevent this from happening again. And unfortunately, like I said earlier, this is human behavior. It's deviant human behavior that they will figure out their way around obstacles that we put in their place. And so at the end of the day, it falls on us, us individual consumers, individual users of social media, internet, to take some responsibility to educate ourselves, to validate the information we see in front of us on our screens um maybe double or triple check the sources of information that um you know we're seeing uh, especially going to be important during this next election cycle with all the deep fake videos wow. deep fake images The the rise of artificial intelligence uh, in in generating these kinds of of, uh, videos and uh, images, it's going to be very problematic in the next several years because they're going to be engineered specifically to provoke our our emotional reaction. There's going to be all kinds of visual evidence to make us think that something happened which did not happen or someone said something that they didn't say. Um, And it's just, it's going to be uh, purposeful uh, in terms of trying to get us um, wound up and angry about something that never even happened. And uh, that's, that's the goal of many of these efforts.
0: No, I agree with you. It seems that if you have a country in which millions of people will believe, for example, that a major political candidate is hiding slaves in his or her basement or something of that nature, that seems to be a bigger problem, right? That seems to be uh, you can regulate it to some degree, but it seems to be a, an educational issue. It seems to be a societal issue that has to be addressed in some other way, um, because again, we're talking about millions and millions of people.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it's 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 something that um, you know they're taking advantage of an existing state of mind. You know, we're 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 inclined to believe the worst, and uh, people that. Um, you know we've we've come to have disagreements with, um, and that I think the more they can get us disagreeing with each other, the better off they are uh, to our to you know to our disadvantage. Uh, and so, you uh, know, I don't think there's really much effort right now to build bridges across political divides to get people to to view the humanity, the core humanity uh, that exists beneath the surface of these political uh, uh, you know campaigns and candidates and positions and so forth. Uh, and until we collectively decide that we want to overcome these kinds of divisions that are being exacerbated and, and so forth, uh, we're going to continue to face these kinds of challenges in the future. I know that's, that's a really pessimistic view of the future, but unfortunately, I think that's, that's kind of where we are right now. You
0: know, prosecutors' offices, whenever they see an issue, whether it's hate crimes or domestic violence, so on and so forth, on federal, state, local levels, they are very good at mobilizing units creating bureaus uh, to address these issues. Is that something that you see happening across the country today?
1: Not that often. Um, I, I, I've seen it, it's it's kind of hard to to generalize across the board because there are so many differences across the nation. I would say in some of the bigger cities, um, whether it's uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York City, Boston, some of the bigger cities, I think we're seeing um, some traction, some effort uh, to try and uh, address these issues uh, at that level. Um, but there's a lot of other jurisdictions that um, they're not as, um, so how do I put this uh, delicately? Um, they're not as enthusiastic. <laughs> this is how I would put it uh, to tackle these kinds of issues, uh, for various reasons which are very pragmatic, very and um, you know, sometimes political, uh, sometimes uh, related directly to funding. Um, so uh, yeah, it just kind of varies across the country in terms of uh, what we're seeing.
0: You've written in the past about how each of us can learn to identify disinformation uh, and other efforts, right, to defend ourselves. What can each individual person do?
1: Well, first off, uh, when you see something that um, reinforces your uh, belief, your position about how evil someone else is, uh, maybe take a, take a moment to just pause and reflect whether or not what you're seeing is actually accurate and true, or if it's um, being purposely put in front of you uh, because the author of that information uh, or disinformation in many cases already knows what you're going to like and not like. And so they're basically trying to reinforce um, a point of view that they're gonna benefit more from than you are. And so if we take a, a few seconds to just pause and reflect, am I being manipulated here? Is there some effort here to try and provoke me to react in the way that I'm about to react? Um, just that hesitation uh, could you know go quite a long ways uh, to slow down the spread of the disinformation. Uh, if we're less um, instinctually hitting that share button or that like button or retweet button or whatever it is that your social media platform offers to you, um, to indicate your willingness to uh, either support a particular image, video statement, or even reject and defend and argue against a certain image or video or, or a statement, if we just take a moment and pause and you know maybe even step away from the social media, for a minute or two and then go back to it and you know, relook at it again. Um, just that that moment of pause and the subconscious may kick in and saying, maybe this isn't something that's actually accurate. Maybe you should check that make sure that you know this is actually one of the classic examples in recent years was when there was a a video of uh, who was it? it? Was Nancy Pelosi was speaking in some kind of press conference, whatever. And someone took that video and just subtly slowed it down. Slowed it down just a you know small bit of speed to make it look like he was she was slurring her words. I know you're um, talking. And millions of people, including the president at the time put it out there as if it was real, put it out there and encouraged others to uh, to view it as real and condemned her. I mean, that's the kind of thing that's relatively easy to do because so many people uh, that were reading this and were seeing this information were already inclined to not like Nancy Pelosi. And so they immediately shared, retweeted, re- and it just, it just spread like wildfire. The more we take responsibility to sort of think about whether or not we really want to do that, As a society, as an individual, um, you know, whether or not we like certain people or not, um, what benefit are we getting personally uh, from engaging in that kind of instinctual sharing, retweeting, um, you know, liking and that kind of stuff? Uh, That's what the social media uh, platforms want us to do. Uh, But is it really in our best interest to do uh, as an individual? Uh, That's something that, again, pausing and thinking about for a few minutes uh, may benefit society as a whole but we're not there yet.
0: Professor, thank you so much for your time. It's incredibly insightful. Uh, Any upcoming works project you'd like to discuss? Um, Right now
1: I'm gonna be focusing a lot of attention on what happens in this next election cycle. Um, My biggest concern right now, as I mentioned, is the use of generative uh, artificial intelligence uh, to create these new deep fake videos, deep fake images. uh, my concern is that there's going to be a lot of disinformation that's meant to provoke uh, certain behaviors. Um, and the more that we go into this election cycle, we as a society go into this election cycle, recognizing that there's going to be a just a whole plethora of individuals, uh, both foreign and domestic, that are going to be trying to shape our perceptions using disinformation, using stuff that's not real, including these deep fake uh, AI generated images and videos. Um, if we take a moment of caution uh, as we approach what we see online. I think um, the outcome would be better. Um, But I'm I'm worried that there's a lot of people who just are not either willing or uh, even attuned to the idea of taking a moment of caution before they proceed.
0: Oh, Professor, pessimistic but nonetheless realistic. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much.